I have played the game of representation and I have followed the fear of failing those I represented in certain moments of my life. But then I also started to value more importance of community uh, spaces. And I learned a way to get rid of the gang of representation is to develop, to promote, to enrich our spaces. The more local we get, the more international we, we will be. Romatopia. Romata je sintura čeren svatoka trlenđu utopija. Sarbišaja je Evropa teharateavel. Hello, let's show divas and welcome again to our next episode of the podcast Romatopia. Roma talk about their utopia for Europe. It is us again. My name is Isabel Rabe and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bieler. And a big welcome to everyone also from my side. In this podcast, we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter images and counter narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we'll be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. We already had inspiring conversations with curators, artists, academics from various countries in Europe. And I'm very much looking forward to today's meeting with our next guest from Spain. Let's welcome Miguel Angel Vargas. Hi, Miguel. Hi, Miguel. Hi, Isabel. Good to have you with us. So, Miguel, we start with a little game. We asked a friend of yours to describe you in just one sentence. And I'm going to read this sentence to you and then you have to say or guess uh, who could have said this about you, okay? Okay. Good. Miguel Angel Vargas Rubio is one who really knows the city of pain and musk with its towers of cinnamon and who knows how to bring this city to life with his singing. Do you have any idea? <laughs> well, the cinnamon part is what told me who could be. Is it my friend Moritz? Yes, it is. So, again, it was it was too easy. It's Moritz Pankok. Uh, he's running the gallery Kaidikas in Berlin, which represents Romani artists from all over Europe. So you have to explain us. What about the city of pain and musk and the towers of cinnamon? Well, Moritz and myself have friends for many, many years, almost 20 years. Since the moment he came to Sevilla as a student, and I, and I was a kind of weird teacher. Well, weird because I 
I ended with my students at home cooking and talking about life. Maybe what Boric is talking is about the, the, the place of family memories in, in our, uh, not only in, in our daily life, but in the way we approach uh, creation in art. So. Moritz told me that he was very impressed by your cultural memory and that when walking with you through Sevilla, um, you can really tell a particular story about any place, any house. And actually, I also had the chance once to experience this by walking with you through Sevilla. Sometimes I, when I try to define myself, I use the, the idea of uh, Baudelaire in Paris, like the flaneur, no? the one who walks through the city. I, I could feel that I could... I could be blind and walk through the city because I know, well, the shortcuts, I know where I, I'm passing just for the memory that I have of the how the city is organized. And although I try to run away of the tourist guide no? uh, way of explaining the city, uh, I prefer to get a closer guiding. No? Like I, I go and I try to share with them what I, what I know. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think that makes a difference. When you listen to people and you get surprised with what people are, are, are showing you. So it's not that this is my city and I show you, but it's also how I get impressed by what you see of my my city. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. The first time I came to Sevilla was also, uh, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should try to remember what were the things that we saw together. I just remember the orange trees on the street. Miguel, can you describe yourself in one sentence, please? Every time that I, I, I try to answer this question of uh, how did I consider myself, I remember those moments when I have felt so like lost. I always told myself, I am the son of my parents, who are Juan and Gertrudez from a tiny town in, in the south of Sevilla. Um, but I'm also an artist. Okay, well, maybe maybe I can uh, read a short CV, a short introduction uh, that, that we have on you. And you can tell me if it sounds good, if I'm missing anything or, or uh, if there's anything incorrect. Okay. Miguel Angel Vargas is a Spanish artist with distinctive Andalusian Gitano roots stemming from Lebrija and Jerez. Gitano is what the Roma in Spain call themselves. He earned his degree in art history from the University of Seville, where he is currently pursuing his PhD in contemporary history. He also studied theater direction at the Seville Institute of Theater in 1999 and worked as a teacher in the MA Scenography program of St. Martin's School of London. He participated in many shows as an actor, a musician, director, producer, scriptwriter, and technician. His passion resides in the world of flamenco and theater. His heartfelt mission is to tell the stories of the Gitano field workers from Lebrija and to follow the commitment of the Teatro Lebrijano, an independent political theater company established in his hometown in the 1970s. Amongst others, he worked with the legendary Romani theater Pralipe, the famous flamenco artist Faruquito, the filmmaker Carlos Saura, and many others. He defines himself as a poet because he tries to embody the authentic meaning from which the original Greek was derived, the one who creates, the one who begets, and gives birth. Does that sound okay? Well, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Do you want to add anything? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. 
I did that biography like, a while ago. It tells the complexity of the places where I have been. And well, I, I don't want to consider myself like as old, but I, I guess that I have been rushing around for a while trying to, to do as many things as I could. Sometimes I did good things and, and I failed many, many times. So, well, I still have things to do or to improve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we want to know what made you the person you are. So let's maybe start um, with your childhood. What is the most vivid memory of your childhood? I am from a little town between Sevilla and Cadiz, which is in, in the border of the two provinces. I grew up in my store that they run a furniture store. So my memories are always around that store. I had a really happy childhood at school. I, I was lucky because I had a really good teacher. We did excursions every week. Instead of doing exams, we did like assembly of, to put knowledge in, together. And when that way of approaching education changed, I was 11, then is when I found how hard can be life. I started to have to do exams, homework, and to recite the lesson in front of the class. And praying, which was really weird for me, like I had to pray at the beginning of school and every morning in a public school. Then, as a consequence of that, Two things appear that has been with me and that still are with me. And one was that I started in stuttering, like being stuttered to, to have problems with my spoken fluency. I have been all my life fighting or living with that. And the second thing is that I started cheating school. So sometimes because I was a nice kid, no one noticed when I wasn't there. <laughs> so I used to get my bike and run away of school and being... Uh, in the middle of the countryside to help the workers or even I, I used to go a lot to the main church in my hometown which is a really big historical building of 13th century and I was a friend of the, the man who was in charge of the he used to give, give me the key of the archive or the key of the secret places I read it and how, how often per week did you not go to school and do your ad adventure tours? Well, at least like once a month for sure, but sometimes even more. No? What I used to do is, I, okay, at nine in the morning, I, I used to get my bike and then I would go back to school like 11 or 12 and I would say I was at the doctor. Well, that was years ago. I couldn't imagine today to do that <laughs> in a big city like Sevilla. Well, we're talking about a small town. So you had one, the education in school and the other one outside of school, in the churches, yeah. in the archives. <laughs> Are you a religious person? I don't have this belief, but I have always been around churches. Mm -hmm. I became an art historian because churches here in, in in Andalusia are like museums. So we are very surrounded by uh, the Catholic culture and uh, our images, uh, imageries are very much linked to the that of the Catholic uh, religion. So, well, I don't believe in God, but I, I live with him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice sentence. Uh, when asking to describe yourself in one sentence, you just said uh, you're the son of my, I'm the son of my parents and an artist. And the way you pronounced it was like as if these two things were kind of not contradictions, but two very different sides of, of you as a person. So was your family a family of 
artists or rather you said your father had a furniture business or rather businessman and you were exotic with your um, passion for, for the arts? Well, in my family being an artist is like being... Uh, it's a problem. <laughs> I, 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 I had like a family who... relatives who are artists but they are always considered like not too serious or not able to deal with so well we somehow we we fulfill part of uh, of of the community in in the, in the way that that we we do the thing that they cannot do because they they have to to do their serious life of being um, with timetables and obligations but at the same time we depend on them because our life are so unstable we need them to for us not to get uh, lost no mm -hmm. so they have this contradiction like they love that i that, that i make a living with arts they they love when, when they see my name in in posters but then they fear also it's normal to, for parents to suffer when you're so, so you, you're an exception basically you're you're an artist in a family of people who are not artists and so they they you are well, something I, different we have four brothers um, yeah, and I'm the only artist, but I have uncles and cousins of my parents who are artists in, in flamenco, obviously. They, they have this idea that to be an artist is to be, in Spanish, ruina. To be a ruina, to be a ruin, is like to be complicated. <laughs> well, yes, I, no, I <laughs> The women of your family play an important role for you, as far as I know. Um, And by the way, interestingly enough, it was also the case with our podcast guest, Ethel Brooks, uh, who's very much influenced by the strength and the presence of the women in her family. So the women of your family also appear in your theater plays. I know that you staged a play in which you were wearing the wedding dress from your mother. And also in your latest play, Los Muertos de Dinero, which I saw in Berlin, deals with the family archive and the life of your grandma. Why are these women so important for you? I mean, while you were talking, I was thinking about my two two grandmothers, Micaela and Manuela. It's not that my male ancestors are not important. It's that the women of my family, and I guess the women of every family, are the ones who make things possible. As a way, what I do is a homage to that, but also to recognize the limitations of masculinity. No? That we are always making mistakes, we are unable to raise kids. So it's uh, women, also the the ones who transmit language, music, and the way you, you, you cook. For example, I tell this story, which is real, that, that both my grandparents knew how to read. One of them, Grandfather Juan, he used to read uh, the, the Far West novels in, when they were working in the countryside, no? 20 families living in just one place, and every night uh, around the fire, they used to read the Far West novels. My grandmother did not know how to read, but she could her own version of the stories. Well, that's what we are. So she was able to even to get through this that she was illiterate. To be illiterate didn't did not mean that she wasn't a capable person or she was a or that she wasn't a person living in at the time. So remembering um, my the, the the stories of the women of my family, which is what I do a lot, is questioning myself. It's questioning who am I, what should I do? Yeah. 
And you see the women of your family as the ones being responsible or make it possible to pass on traditions, memory, history to the next generation, as far as I understood. Yeah, it's tough, but making it, that is not a uh, rational process, but like, they do it. They do it and they make it real. Just last week we were speaking and you told me about your grandma. Um, I remember very well my grandmother being able to pass from comedy to tragedy in the same sentence. I like that very much. Did she pass this to you? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm a very a person who loves to talk. Sometimes when I feel stuck that I can't write, which is what I should do, Uh, most of my time. When I get stuck, what, what do I do? I go out and I record myself and then I translate to uh, letters what I say because I need to talk. And I realize that for me, for myself, it's important to talk to be able to think. So it's not that I, I think and then later that I, I, I talk. It's that the very own process of talking how to construct. Yeah, and then Obviously, because I live in these contradictions of, of theater and flamenco, gacho and Hitano world, countryside and the city, and women and men, I need this tool of combining comedy and not considering myself like too serious, but at the, and at the same time being able to transmit like the seriousness of the things that I, I try to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And it's the walking and talking at the same time that you um, that you like and you need, right? When you call yourself a flaneur. Yeah. Like yeah. the old Greek philosophers already knew that you can have the best uh, ideas when when walking. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, and, 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 and we value that in, in this moment that we are living on because we are locked at home. Now we should value that. This idea of occupying spaces like to be outside not only in our homes no? can you talk a little bit more about that what's your what's been your experience during the pandemic and the lockdown the first one and now maybe the second one how is it with you and your family well it's been complicated we, we live in a small house but uh, we are three people a uh, little kid so well the first um, moment were, was even more complicated because schools were not uh, open so we had to be all in this small apartment. But then there was one nice thing when when allowed to get uh, to go out just out some hours and during the day because we live in the center of the city. For me, it was a pleasure to be almost my daughter in the in the areas where normally you would find crowds of tourists or crowds of, of people from Sevilla, and there was. There were like no one. It was like two, three weeks before things started to get like again, not as crowded as it used to be. But well, that was really nice to ha to have this relief of um, having been locked down for many, many days, and then realizing that in a mixture of postcard, um, set design, and historical city, like in Venice, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like in Venice, yeah. So it was nice to see the city again through the eyes of my daughter. No? Yeah. Miguel, uh, you are an art historian and an actor and a theater person. You started with studying art history. How does an art historian become an actor? I studied both at the same time. I always wanted to be a director, but 
again, my family. I moved to Sevilla and I needed something serious to be by my parents. Like, okay, I'm going to do something serious at the city. So I told my parents I'm going to do art history. And then I also knew that to be a director and have a background in art history was something important. You should have a knowledge in the history of art. But the problem, I was going to every day, like to in the morning, I used to go to the theater school. And then after like, at three, I, I go to the university. And obviously, I started getting tired again with the way they teach um, classes. Uh, rehearsals were more attractive. So, uh, like, naturally, I used to get more interested in making a, a living in theater outside the classroom. So the same reaction as in preschool or in school. Yeah, the same. <laughs> so, so uh, basically, you decided to do this art history. Uh, I guess partly you you said uh, kind of to to anchor yourself and to show your parents that you're you're serious. How was it at school? As a gitano at school, did you have uh, any feeling that you were discriminated or suffer from any kind of discrimination at university or or earlier? I have a very gitano family name in my hometown. That was something. Maybe more relaxed because San Gitanos in my class, family of, my, of myself, there was some problem um, with that. I always tell the story that I knew that I was a Gitano at school because somebody was yelling at my sister, Gitana, Gitana, <laughs> meanwhile playing. Mm-hmm. I asked my mother, Mama, what, what to be Gitano is? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, well, because it's a small town and we are known, and yeah, people always knew that I, I was the son of the. El Gitano de los Muebles, no? the, the, mm-hmm. the Gitano of the furniture yeah. uh, owner. Then when I started getting interested in history, I got a problem that not in high school or not in the university, I, I did not find any place where I could study or get knowledge of my history, of my own history. Mm. So yeah. studying history at the University of Sevilla, which is a historical building where the old tobacco factory where the subcarmen, the cigarette maker used to work. Well, in that very historical place, there wasn't any um, subject or department or or directly teachers were not interested in Roma. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this was also before the internet. So you couldn't just go to Google and look up the history. This was the libraries. I had the same experience. I was in New York and I had to go to a very big library before I could find one single book. Yeah, so I had this this experience. The moment that I was studying art history, there was no possibility. Professor did not know, did not have interest in Roma. But then when naturally I got uh, involved in flamenco as a professional, I realized uh, there was this madness, uh, mania, or obsession with Gitano San Flamenco. It's the only possibility in Spain to study Roma history, like to do it through the eyes, through the lens of flamenco. Flamenco occupies occupies the resources for researching, the resources for public image, the resources for getting accepted. No? Yeah. Well, now I am in, in the middle of questioning that, no? Like, okay, I can, I leave flamenco as my family language somehow, like a family musical language, my history, but also I can I can question that the position, the image, or, or the public discourse of Roma in Spain. So you already made the perfect bridge to our next topic, because of course we want to talk to you about 
about flamenco, it, which is your passion, your work, your life. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. Flamenco, which includes the dance, the guitar, the singing, is widely regarded as Spain's national cultural treasure, the Spanish identity, let's say. Many people do not even know that it goes back to the gitanos who have shaped, preserved and always developed flamenco further. So on the one hand, the images of flamenco costumes, or let's say no, on the other hand, the images of flamenco costumes, the cliché of the hot-blooded Ritana and the passionate Ritana correspond to the so-called positive stereotypes that are still in the minds of white people of the majority societies when it comes to Roma. So we have a lot to talk about and to distinguish. But first of all, you already answered the question a little bit. What is flamenco about for you personally? I have a problem with that because I wanted to maintain it like a problematic question to answer, like what is flamenco for me? First, I, I, I should be saying what it's been, what, what is flamenco been, not like what it is, but what it's been, no? Obviously, it's my heritage as a family heritage and in terms of language, in terms of repertoire, in terms of the music we, we share and the music that, that I identify part of my history, part of the moments of my life. But also it's my profession. So I'm a flamenco person. So why, why don't you start with talking about what role flamenco played in your family? Tell us a little bit more about that. My family has the two sides. One is the, the music that you are taught since you are a child, even before you are born. It's the music that you, they play to you. So it's the music that accompanies your life, the soundtrack of your life. <laughs> But also for these artists that I have in my family, these relatives who are artists, it's, you shared both things, the very close code that you are, but then also the possibility of telling the others who are you and what's your history. So it's a, it's a family language, but it's also um, a profession. Let's jump for just a, a brief moment from this family perspective into the bird's eye view. In 2010, flamenco was declared a world intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO, a great recognition for flamenco. But the enthusiasm about it among the Spanish Gitanos was limited because they only appear as a marginal note in the explanatory text. Their elementary contribution to the development of flamenco is, again, not recognized. What about the recognition of these flamenco roots and flamenco in Spain today? Did anything change? The first time that UNESCO supported uh, flamenco was in 1969. That's something that I learned a couple of years ago. Uh, when a man who was one of the founders of the fascist party, he created a Centro para el Estudio de la Música Andaluza y el Flamenco, the Center for the Study of the Andalusian Music and Flamenco in Madrid. And that, that center was supported with the help of UNESCO. And it was the first time that the flamenco was researched flamenco in order to preserve it for the eternity, you know? So more or less the same idea than today. But this man, in one interview that he gave to ABC, the newspaper, he explained the complexity of the process, how it was to get the support of the Franco authorities. But, and then, then he said, because he thought that the, the center would be full of gitanos. Mm. 
I have a problem with that. Yeah. Uh, it's not that, that I don't value the importance of the uh, recognition of UNESCO. Is that somehow I have the feeling that Roma people do not need that. Why? We get lost in this kind of uh, petitions of recognition for different institutions, be locally, nationally, regionally, or internationally. But we should not be in that, because at the end, what they will give you will be less of what you were demanded for. <laughs> so they, 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 they will give you, okay, a recognition, but... Uh, what's beyond the recognition? What did you do after that? No? It's a waste of. It's not a waste of energy, but it's because we obviously we live in we live socially, and we need we as I said earlier, flamenco is is something really attractive, and it's, it calls to it occupies this international image. Every time international audiences see flamenco, they think about Roma and Gitanos of Spain. So it's like we felt. The need to reclaim part of that thing, no? Yeah, I understand. You're, you're. I think you're saying it's, it's not so much that we need the external recognition. We should look to ourselves for, yes. you know, we yes. we know who we are, and we don't need to prove anything to anybody. We know who we are, and we should, uh, we shouldn't have uh, this kind of sense of insecurity to to prove anything. There's nothing yeah, to prove. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but no, but for the people not to misunderstand it, we had to be close. No, no. If I say that we don't need that, it's because Roma people are alive and they create and they have they they don't spaces of recognition. They are in this time. They are here. We are in 2020. We are, we live in this time. But we also have come sort of time. That's something that I have learned. That it's a process that I have been through. This idea that questioning Myself and questioning flamenco as a symbol of recognition is what behind that. The problem of that is that sometimes you can recognize flamenco, you can recognize the importance of Romani Gitano artists, but then at the same time you can deny the right of Roma, of Roma people for being and control their life. In certain moments of our history in Spain, where we have had a lot of Romani artists, a lot of production of Romani flamenco most of the, of the time. There are certain moments where you can see a lot of Roma images, a lot of uh, Gitanos, like very present in the public sphere. But those moments, at the same time, you, you, you don't find a more serious debate of what Roma people are in Spain. So it's like, okay, recognition in flamenco, but you, you, you don't get recognized as a national minority, or you you don't get recognized as being able to control your your life. That's quite a unique and in depth perspective. Because uh, when you were beginning to speak, I was going to say, "Well, that's maybe we can make another comparison." Saying, "Well, that's like when a lot of Roma they want to say, oh, well, we have Charlie Chaplin, we have Rita Hayworth. We're looking for other people who are famous to get recognition that we can be famous too. And maybe we really don't need that. We should just be happy with who we are, and we know who we are, and we don't need the external recognition. But this this additional element that you introduced about how uh, we have been present and it has been." Uh, very visible, but then you don't really have control. I haven't heard that before. That's that. It's true. It makes sense. But that's an interesting analysis. I would like to ask you to continue to analyze a little bit more about how did flamenco originate. Can you tell a little bit about the history and and what are the specific influences of Roma and and Gitanos on flamenco? Okay, that's a really good question. I will get it as a chance for 
again asking our Romani uh, international friends to get a close look on flamenco. We need you, you Roma friends from outside Spain to have a close view on uh, on flamenco. Flamenco started uh, as we know today, like the the connection between the word flamenco and a, and a new art form, which is more or less a, the image that we have today, that started in the decade of 1860s. Flamenco is not as old as people think, but the, the, um, what our Gitano um, vision of the history of flamenco would be um, has to, to be very much connected with what I call the Gitanismo fashion, and not only in Spain, but in Europe and beyond. So I combat and I question this idea of Roma people have contributed because the idea of contributions, which is like they use the metaphor of a stew, like of a food, yeah. different cultures, the different peoples, they uh, each of them, they give something to the to the stew. You know? Like one is the the base, the oil, and, and so, sometimes when they, the flamenco, Researchers, they when they use the metaphor of you know, the food to explain the history, they say, "And gitanos are the salt." <laughs> oh, and why not the cook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the history of, of gitano people in in the second half of the 18th century, during the the whole 19th century, it's very much about this uh, fantasy that was created and that, that was repeated as spread, and that became what we would call today a stereotype. So that, that fashion, that afición a los gitanos, is at the very root of what we call flamenco. After the catastrophe of the Great Raid in 1749, which almost erased the Roma population from Spain, legal equality was declared for gitanos in 1783. This did bring about a less violent era. The bourgeoisie and parts of the aristocracy supported the Gitanos, but not out of pure empathy, but in the course of an anti-enlightenment and anti-European movement. An exaggerated image of the Roma leads to Gitano mania. The bourgeoisie began to dress, dance, and sing like Gitanos. The Gitanesque became a symbol for the Spanish, simply because it was considered non-European and non-enlightened. The Spanish Gitano, in turn, began to identify with this constructed image, a foreign image begins to mix with the self-image. Flamenco appear as a reaction to that. So it's a very individual expression with popular music. Yeah, I was going to say, how is that different than what's happened with, you know, jazz and the blues and rock and roll and rap? How, how is that different? Well, They more or less were born in, at the same time. They those music met in those international exhibitions in Paris, Berlin, London, or Chicago. So there are stories of how those artists got together. There is always this contradiction, this tension between what you consider your music is and what people think it is. So it's not always as easy to say a music is very much linked to an ethnic group. Is much more complicated than that. For me, to say that those artists in the decade of 1860s in Spain, they got tired. They got tired of this uh, representation that was like an obsession in the stages of Spain and Europe. This image of Gitanos, no? 
So that somehow they got tired and they naturally, in professionally, they transform that reaction into a, a new art form, which is flamenco. One of the styles of, of flamenco, uh, fandango, no? Fandango, if you go to the historical root of fandango, it's an African root word. Um, in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, it would mean something different, a dance, normally. Um, a dance that was taken to America, to South America, um, and got obviously influenced by um, the Spanish um, domination, but also, so it has a lot of African. But then in the process, what we have seen is that, for example, in terms of music, is fandango used to be something like rhythmical, quick, and then with the process of professionalization of flamenco, it became slower, as slow as to be able for like uh, to allow for the singer to be really, really deep um, individual, no? like to express something very, very personal. You use a. Uh, an, an older structure or an old lyric, something that would maybe would come from a theater play, but you you would make it your own. This is what is very unique in flamenco. Not only authorship of the lyrics, not only the authorship of the melodies, the authorship of the interpretation. And, and is there a difference between a private or a public flamenco show? And a stage is is a is a position of affirmation. So what you affirm on a stage is something that you remember sometimes or something you you want to tell. So you need things to remember. You, you need things to tell. And that's what you do in, in a private uh, environment. So between the stage and the private environment, there's something in the middle, which is the what we call the huerga, uh, literally party. A party in flamenco, it's something very much coded. So there's a code. You have to behave in a flamenco party. There, are, there is a place for every person. There's a different concept of time. In those parties is, is where there is a, a mix of the memories of what professional people got in memories of, of their what they know of of what they know of music. So in those parties, you have the voices of your people, the, the way you dance, like you, you dance like the, the same way of like your mother or your grandmother. So you join those two things that you became better professional on stage because you remember better your family. No, So it is it's also something unique. Maybe there is something similar, yeah, in tango, in jazz, like when jazz musicians, they after the show, when they meet and they are so free, no? they feel... Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. But it's not that they they do it, you know, okay, I'm going to play whatever I want. No, no. They, sometimes when they are, when you are in a party context, you are even more obliged to follow a certain rules. On a stage, you follow the rules of artist construction, so art forms and art language, lighting, sound. But then when you are in a, in a flamenco party or in a jazz party or, or in a tango party, it's something different. It brings me to another topic we wanted to talk about uh, with you. The famous flamenco icon, the dancer Mathilde Corral, 
claimed once that a flamenco guitar played by a gitano sounds different and the dance of a gitano dancer has a different expression and also others like um, Anto Antonio El Pipa Dorantes and speak of this special flamenco style of the gitanos. And sometimes I, I get the feeling that it's not only about traditions or techniques that are passed on from one generation to the next, but I can hear this um, essentialist idea like Gitanos as an ethnic group have certain attributions, so like they have it in their blood stereotype thing. Um, what is your point of view? Well, sometimes I could answer that by saying in the public sphere, I would say that once you use publicly that you are a Gitano in a flamenco context, well, people would expect that you would do something different. Sometimes there is a re-ethnicization of, of what you do, no? So you live with that. You want to be a contemporary musician, but then when you put in that poster Hitano pianist, then people would say, well, they, they would expect something, no? Mm. The, the answer to that contradiction would be the different pieces of art that you create or the, the different moments that you try to, to give to the audience. But then when you go to... The community uh, side, being, being recognized as a Gitano in flamenco, like a passport, like a way to meet with your own people. It's not only of what you do, but obviously how you do it. There is this way of doing flamenco and being Gitano in, on a public uh, environment than doing in a Gitano environment. Mm -hmm. I understand. Um, let's come back for a moment on this phenomenon of, of Gitanismo, this Gitano obsession, uh, you, as you called it. You said once that after the Gran Redada, the great raid uh, in 1749 um, by the, another Spanish king, Fernando VI, uh, where with the aim of arresting all Gitanos living in Spain, separating them, there was a support in the bourgeoisie and also in part of the aristocracy, right? And this this fashion began, um, this Ritano fashion. And um, could could you tell us again that you once said that Ritanos in, at that time began to mimicry this image the bourgeoisie created of them um, and started to identify with this image. Is, is that true? Well, there is something similar today with uh, these kind of crazy TV shows, Gypsy Kings or My Fat Gypsy Wedding. Is not the creation of a stereotype. The problem is that the power to who controls the repetition of that stereotype. Um, when you go to the history of theater in, in Spain, the one that people would go, people who did not how to read, they would be confronted not only one one time, but like regularly to this image. So what you have then is an overexposition to that image. And naturally uh, influence you. You start to to get the idea that that people would accept that image better than the real image of yourself. It's even the way you talk. It's even the way you dress. And it's even what people when when people get interested in in the history of of, Gitano, of uh, Gitanos in Spain, they would go first to that image. So they 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 even when when they. When 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 you meet researchers of who are not Roma or, you, or even who are, they don't question that overexposition. For example, in the case of Caló, Caló, which is um, 
consider our dialect, which is not a dialect, it's something different. It's more a pogolet or a ethnolect. What we have in Spain is a kind of um, Spanish spoken people with certain uh, words with Romani roots, but most of them is a creation of 19th century authors and poets and those aficionados who they created even a language for gitanos. Can, can you give an example of a word or a phrase that a non-Roma created in the 19th century that is now part of this language? Yeah, for example, pindrel. Pindrel. That is food. No. Yeah. Or hero is head. And, and sometimes it's face. Yes, yes. But those are those are real Romani root, roots. Th those exist. So that's not an invention of a... Yeah. But you go, for example, uh, build to them. Yeah, the, because, uh, at that time, there were many dictionaries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even the ones created, the, one of them created by George Borbo, uh, who became so successful that he... He marked the the path, like like uh, all all the, the ones who be, who came after George Borrow, they follow him and they copy him. For example, the word to to name potatoes. Oh no, uh, like chickpeas. Chickpeas, for example, chickpeas we call it arrendundi. Okay. And there's nothing in Romanes for, for that. Okay. The question is that it's not too bad. But for me, the, the problem becomes when you um, don't recognize that. You, you don't recognize that there was this problem with creating, repeating this image, making it the only way to be in a public space. Yes. That, that image. Yeah, people don't question what was what happened before that time. What was the image before then and who created the image? And if we are copying this image, who yep. is the author and, and why are we accepting it? There's, there is no questioning of this. And this, I think this is common, not just in Spain, but across all of Europe. Uh, after the 19th century, you see it definitely in, in the old Austrian empire as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, related to this to this topic of the image, Miguel, may I ask you to tell our listeners uh, the special role of sherry bottles in the 18th century for shaping the image of Spain and, and what this had to do with Ritanos? You told me this is astonishing story once. Well, basically, the, the, the reason, one of the main reasons for the appearance of the creation of the Gitanismo uh, fashion, you already mentioned earlier a bit of this interest of bourgeoisie and part of the nobility. No? Why there is this suddenly this uh, connection between Gitanos and the idea of Spain? Basically, the reason is that um, politicians that try to uh, erase the Gitano populations were enlightened politicians. So they wanted to, so those 18th century politicians, they wanted to create a, a new Spanish state, a state with the uh, strength to collect taxes, no? One more similar to to Europe, no? So they, because they had, we had had always this idea of being backward, no? So they needed to to show strength as state. Remember that church, the, the, the Catholic Church and the, the the nobility they did not pay taxes. So they they went to showing this strength. They went for the Roma. So they tried to erase them. So there, there were many reactions, and one of the main reactions was this one: like the suddenly the Hitano, the the bourgeois started to dress as Hitanos. They started to speak as Hitanos. So they created this idea. It is a, a new ideology, like it would cover theater, obviously, 
because that was a, the press of the poor people, but also the labels of the sherry wines. If you go to the museum of this museum of, of sherry labels in Jerez, and you, you would find a lot of uh, Calo words in the name of some sherry wines. Not only that, but the the tobacco packet, the the the, the beginning of photography in. In Spain, it's very much linked to the representation of Hitanos. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Sorry, can I repeat a little bit just to make sure I understood? So, for example, the nobility, they were free from taxes before. As the state tried to impose some kind of taxation on them, they decided that they want to be like Hitanos because they're free and they have all kinds of power and they don't have to do what anybody tells them. And they suddenly romanticized this, this image and decided that they wanted to be like that? Well, I would say more precisely that what they created is that the idea that Gitanos represented the old regime. So the Gitanos Gitanos represented what, how things were before these enlightenment politicians arrived. It was an anti-enlightenment movement, actually. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so they were backwards. They were yeah. backwards, and so to be, to not pay taxes and to not not be a good citizen, you're backwards. You're like the gitanos, and that's a bad thing. Well, it's it's a bad thing for 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 an enlightenment politician. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. But the people liked the idea because they could be rebels. But the state didn't like the idea because it showed that they have trouble making the backwards people adhere to the new the new way to collect taxes and to make a powerful state. Yeah. That's why you find uh, a lot of characters in the, in the theater plays of Gitanos who are uh, popular heroes. Huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are unable to have a normal life. Or sometimes they are bandoleros, but most of the time they are thieves or people who want to cheat other people. No? Yeah. Miguel, even if you don't call yourself a singer, um, we know how wonderful you can sing. Would you like to sing something for us and our listeners? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You don't have to if you don't want to. Nobody's pressuring you. Okay. It's okay. You can. I can do it. But then I, I had to because it's for me. It's very very weird speaking in English, and then I, I had to stop for a moment and then thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to switch. <laughs> singing flamenco in English is. I think it's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's sing something that I compose for for a flamenco singer, okay? Aunque yo vaya solito a la besada. Aunque yo vaya solito a la besana y yo sin el amorito vuelvo la parva ay no me pegue más Ay, maniero, que no me pegue más voces, maniero, que el compadre. 
Thank you. Oh, I moved. I cannot continue with questions right away. So, <laughs> why don't we play a game then? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I could explain what I what, what, what I said. Yes, please. Yes, please. So this kind of style is called trilla. Trilla is a it's a farming um, tool to collect and uh, to to make the, the harvest of wheat. No? Uh, so that, that that's a, the origin of the root trilla. But that is, well, it's supposed to be one that was sung by field workers. There are certain um, recordings of that, so there, there, there must be something very much related to agricultural work. But then, again, when it goes to stage, it gets changed, it gets a bit modified, it gets adapted to art codes, no? So then the, the lyrics, I tell the story of uh, field workers uh, from town, Agitano, I use very local uh, words of Gitano uh, Calo in, in my hometown, and referring to the moritos, like, well, it, literally the little moors, but the, the moritos were the ones who were looking at the sun. They got so burned that they became so black. Mm -hmm. So it, that's what I tell, no? that I know white Roma that they became dark because looking, uh, working with the sun. No? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, nice. Miguel, uh, even though we already had a gift from you th that you were singing for us, um, we have a little game. Um, we always ask our guests to bring us a virtual present. So it can be an object, an item that tells an important biographical anecdote or represents uh, something that is important in the life of our guests. We call it memory piece. So what did you bring us? I bring a 1974 guitar. Wow. <laughs> It used to belong to my, one of my uncles who taught me the first lessons of guitar. And I bring it because uh, he gave it to me as a gift because it was broken. So he gave it to me for me to fix it, no? to go to a luthier and, and fix it. No? And that guitar... This is 1974. It's a really good guitar, a really good one. It was broken in the, on the side. And it smelled a lot. It smelled like a cypress, kind of special wood. Mm -hmm. It's a guitar that, that, that has been with me a lot. and uh, has been with me in moments that I value. Well, for me, it's a, one of the few things that carried me in the different movies that I had had in my life, different houses, different cities, uh, different works. It's like, this is my guitar. A good old broken guitar that has been accompanying myself. For oh, wow. That's a wonderful present. Yeah, nice. Thank <laughs> you very much. A broken guitar. <laughs> Moving on from the broken guitar, Miguel, can we talk about theater now? Maybe. Okay. So even if uh, very people, very few people know it, there is a tradition of Roma theater been around for quite some time. And you work together with Dragan Ristic on the archive section, theater and drama for Roma Archive, the digital archive of the Sinti and Roma. Can you talk about that? What was your goal to, to do there? Well, uh, at that time we were um, 
confused that there, there were a difference between institutional theater experiences and those produced outside the institutions. So with that in mind, obviously we uh, we approach a history of uh, Romain and, and other similar projects, even with their failures, no? because it's important that when you approach these kind of named historical companies, we obviously we we always tell their good uh, the, the good things that the, the things that they got done where they reach. No, when I think about contemporary uh, Romani theater, obviously I think about Fralipe. The legendary Roma theater Pralipe was founded by Rahim Borhan in Skopje in the early 1970s. It quickly developed into a successful theater, went on tour and received numerous awards. The theater's performances were exclusively in Romani language, consistently without subtitles. In addition to its own texts, the theater also performed European theater classics such as Oedipus the King by Sophocles or Blood Wedding by Federico García Loca. When Pralipe could no longer work in Yugoslavia, which had been destroyed by the civil war, Roberto Ciulli brought the group, which had already been a guest at his theater, to Mülheim an der Ruhr, Germany, where it was based until 2001. A spectacular guest performance with Carmen in 2003 in Newcastle, England, was to remain the theater's last great international success. In 2004, Pralipe had to file for insolvency. The International Theatre World lost a unique voice and the minority its most important institution, which had understood how to find a contemporary theatre language for the culture of the Sinti and Roma. They found uh, a way to build a new imaginary, uh, to build a new language. They, they are very much influenced by the 1970s context of independent companies. During the, the, the research for, for the work of Roma, from Roma Archive, I found a performance of La Cuadra de Sevilla, a very important theatre company from Sevilla. They were in Skopje. Um, they were part of the National Theatre Festival in 1972. Okay. And they were there in Skopje, and in the same week, you would have Pralipe, Peter Brook, and La Cuadra de Sevilla. So it's there, it's somehow documented, but it's not known. They had this intention of uh, uh, of uh, putting Roma culture in a in a in a high level um, position, but then they also have the same problems of many other companies um, in the way of finding their place in the public spaces. I will tell you that what it's. Something similar between Pralipe and, and Romain as a theater, a state theater company. We have this problem. Every time we have a, a low moment, like a low, uh, that, that there's no income, that there is no much tour, that there is no work. So Romani theater artists, they feel the need to go to access to the big names. No? For example, in Russia, it would be Pushkin. And then we have a problem with Carmen, no? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the opera and the novel, no? by Mary Mayo, we said. So the last years of Paralipe, they had to combine like a contemporary theater place with this kind of place of their own version of Carmen. I was there. 
it was yeah 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 you played the role of jose how was that how was that work when you well, did it? an awful version an awful version but tell us tell us this was in germany right in middleheim yeah because carmen is an awful play <laughs> say that so for me it's funny like well we had this problem every time we create an institution you know a roma institution in in theater we combine this uh, need of telling our own with the stories that get more attraction for the western taste mm. yeah i see the problem so what what would you suggest what shall we do with with carmen It's like the, this debate that, that we have seen like lately with the on Disney version of Tredan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There has to be a, a Romani woman doing the character uh, in the film. I see it more than that. It's not just the, the Disney version of the, the different films or uh, tell me what you think. But I think it's also it's like who is the author and what was the purpose? So we, uh -huh. we, have, we have we have different things, you know, whether it's films by Roman Polanski or uh, The, the Bill Cosby show, um, do we still go back and we look at their art? But we're not questioning that with Carmen, or we are here now between us, but the public isn't questioning why should we revisit Carmen? Maybe we need to just put it in the in the cabinet and lock it up and never see it again. Or, or I don't know, what, what do you think? The theater of 2000, 2020, you are um, somehow obliged to... Uh, question everything so if you want to make a version of Carmen you can do it but the, how to respond or how to answer the the anxieties and and how to confront the well what what, what we would say today the narrative no? I tried in my case for example I has been invited to direct shows uh, around Lorca and I have not accepted those projects. Not because of Lorca, because I don't want to be in the game of expectation. We, because we are Romani theater people, we are expected to do something with Lorca. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always the, the Roma theater industry somehow. It's interesting that when we talk about Roma theater, we immediately have to discuss or have to problematize the Roma Romani characters like Carmen and Esmeralda and so on. Well, that, that's why lately what I'm saying, what I'm trying to, to do is to confront the very own idea of theater, no? the, of fiction, how Roma people live fiction. And I try to claim and reclaim our own ways of uh, telling stories, our own spaces, which is very important. It's not that we are not living in 2020, we are. Roma artists are very active, but not only those who are linked to international networks. No, it's not only that. They, they are, and they, we, we value them, we need them. But even the popular artists, those who whose main purpose is to make a living with art, they are also creating spaces, they are also creating narratives, they are also creating stories that are somehow consumed or by our own people. And that's what makes a difference. Like, Yes, and you, and you are doing this too. Uh, this is something that you're doing specifically. And I would like to ask you about some of these different spaces. You, you did theater projects in a women's prison in Sevilla. Can you tell us about that? Why, why a women's prison? Well, I was very, I was very young when when I did. I was 21. <laughs> oh, okay. I was studying uh, art history and theater director. Those years, I was very lucky that I, I had like three, four fellowships. No? So I felt that I had to give something back to society. So there was this Romani NGO, Romani Union. They were 
looking for someone who will be responsible for the theater project of the female prison. Well, I, it was like seven months going to twice a week to that prison, and I had 33 women. Around 28 of them were Roma, and most of them were there waiting for the trial. So not like they come there, but like they're waiting for the trial because of the, the small selling of drugs, no? That's a funny story that for you to, to see how the popular perception of Romani theater works. I was in, invited to do a theater play, then I had women. No? Mm-hmm. I was tired of doing La Casa de Bernarda Alba by Lorca. Let's try to find a different story that could work for these women. And I, and I thought, Lysistrata, you know, the story of how the women of Greece make this sexual sex, sex strike no? because mm-hmm. they're fighting at war. Desperately, I tried to, to convince them, but it was really complicated. And I failed. Uh, not only because of the complexity of the, of the play, but because of the situation. Every day was a, a surprise. They wanted to have some fun, but then many days they, 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 they came to the class like really sad, no? because, well, it's, it's a prison. Yeah. One of the leaders came to me. Let's say that most of them were uh, lesbians. Anyway, but they, they, they had this need of uh, re- receiving love. No? One of the leaders came one day came to me and tell him, hey, hey Miguel, we have a, our theater story. What is that? We are going to do a wedding. Mm-hmm. Again, I know, it's a wedding. And they did a wedding with all the characters, the, the old people, the party. And then the day of the performance, press came, the politicians, all they, they, they did, they, they gave like speeches of, you are here because you are poor, you are women, and because you are gitanas. Yeah, okay. No one was aware or no one realized that that was something <laughs> very special, that gitano women in a prison doing a Romani wedding, because it's the, the idea of a theater. It's not a, an imposed fiction, no? Yeah, it's performativity of the everyday life, or let's say in, of, of special moments in Moment. private life, yeah. like a wedding. Yeah. Interesting. I was yeah. really young. <laughs> no, but I think that that's important. And I think maybe you are very young, but uh, I think this is a subject that uh, a lot of Roma don't like to talk about or isn't always talked about in depth or in as, as a place to, to, to claim space. Because the fact that uh, we have people who have family members who are in prison, this is, this is a real subject. Uh, and it's, a, it's something that people maybe feel ashamed about or maybe Maybe they don't want to talk about. It's an interesting point to bring to the surface, and, and that's that's what theater does and should do. And you've, uh, besides that, is there a particular production that you might want to tell us something about? Something that was very special to you, something that you think had a big impact, or something you simply enjoyed the best? I was working with Pralipe in Germany. I went there because they invited me to be part of the Carmen production, and well, it was. Interesting, and I learned a lot. And but then they invited me to be part of the new production, Camorro. Again, the story of the trip of Romani people from India to Europe through music, which is a trope. No, it's something mm-hmm. that we do that no, a lot. So we premiered in Dusseldorf, and then we were invited to. We didn't know if we 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 were going to do ten, five, or one gig in Croatia. <laughs> so we. <laughs> We went there by three, four months. Well, at the end, we only did one, one performance in Pula, in Croatia. And for me, it was special. That was 2001, I think. The feeling of the world was really, very recent still. And then 
because of uh, Rajko Juric and one of my my last plays, which is in in the website of Rome Archives, Gilia. It's something. It's a it's a play that I have really good memory because it convincing a flamenco artist to do something different, something complicated. Because they are very much into their code. No? So I convinced Jose Valencia to do a show with poems of contemporary Romani. And then, then we had the problem of language, in which language. At that, at that time, I didn't know much uh, like anthologies or books of Romani poets. Now there are much more. No? Mm-hmm. So I found the story of Kojuric, uh, um, a, uh, a wedding in, in Auschwitz, and I use it as a dramaturgy, as a story to cover all the different poems. Well, the result is can be seen, and I think it's, it was quite a decent show. And, and not only that, it was that I, I think that the Romanists were using flamenco uh, in a good way. So, well, those two experiences is quite are very much linked to my to my good memories of okay, I did something good here. <laughs> you you adapted or you took a play from uh, a different tradition and you showed it to an audience in Spain, showing uh, a different type of gitano or a different type of Roma. To yeah. Them. Yeah, and also put the flamenco tradition in in another contemporary context. That also very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think the, the first time that flamenco was used to tell stories of the Holocaust was by Mario Maggia. There, there is one of, in the one of the short, the, the first short films of Tony Catliff. So uh, this time, <clears throat> the company of Mario Maggia was in Paris, and I think they they met and they. Decided to do this short film, one of the first of Tony Catliff. It was kind of weird to see uh, a Gitano artist using flamenco language to tell a story or to well, to reflect on the Holocaust. So, but there, there hasn't been continuation. Like there is no match. We could continue to talk about theater and art and flamenco for hours, but let's jump to another uh, another topic. Um, this podcast aims to highlight the diversity of Roma and their different national characteristics, their heterogeneous cultures. The Spanish Roma are again a very special case. Also due to oppression, persecution, they were forced to give up traditions and even their former Romani language. What does it mean for you to be Roma or Gitano in, in Spain? Uh, when I'm confronted with this question, what does it make me a Gitano? I tell there needs to be two things. One is coming from a Gitano family. It would be being recognized as Gitano by the community. I, I don't like to talk about this idea of... In, in Spain, it's quite normal to people to talk about you know, this idea of... Very popular idea of uh, Gitano blood. And I don't... I hate talking about that. But at the same time, it's important to talk about the family connections. Then the idea of community. Um, community is not um, something not fixed. I mean, obviously, there is, in my case, for example, I'm, I would call, I, I would use the community of my hometown. So I'm a Gitano person because I am recognized by, as a Gitano in Lebrija and Jerez. But then because of my career or because of my interest, because of the way I have been dealing with that, that community has got bigger. I am also recognized as a Gitano by the Andalusian, Spanish, or the international Gitano people or communities. So, but then the question also, the the defining identity. That's something that Julius Rostas tried to raise in his last book, not the importance of the important, but also the complexities, the complexity of defining Romani identities in the context of 
2020. Why Romani people has why they they have a problem with defining Romani culture or Romani identity, and I have a problem with that too because I've I've been um, questioning the the roots of certain part of Hidana identity in Spain. I get not lost, but I get like not satisfied with what sometimes I see my cousins of my friends, my Hitano friends, I don't get satisfied with what they promote as a Hitano identity. But then how did I solve that? Well, I get to uh, down the earth and I get to back to the family and I my home here in Sevilla or to my parents in my in Debrija. And I then I realized that it's a debate out there. And people at the end they live it in a more natural way. They mix everything. They can be living in 2020 and enjoying um, what life can give us today, but they also can claim their history in a, in a very daily life context. So it's a, it's a much more personal thing. Is that what you're saying? It has to be personal to be political. It's like mm-hmm. in feminism. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It has to be, otherwise, hidden identity would be an adoption, would be a, a dress, as you put, and it's not that. Exactly, mm. exactly. Mm. I, I agree 100%. I think that uh, it's good to hear. I, I'm glad to hear things like that from, from, from different people. Yeah, because mm. uh, to be hidden in a very international context would be very, very local. So we had to go back to our, our family roots to be international. Yes, yeah, for the authenticity, yeah. Can you say a little bit uh, to our audience about just in general, the situation of, of Gitanos in Spain, maybe uh, a little bit about civil rights movement. Is there a strong movement? Are Roma well organized in Spain? Uh, okay, that's a very complicated question to answer. Yes, so. yes, I know. <laughs> okay, let's be brave then. The Gitano Spanish movement is lost between different interests. One is the, let's say, the NGO system, which has been promoted in the democracy. So the few institutions we have, the few public institutions we have in Spain, are a result of that movement, no? That the NGO movement. Mm-hmm. And they abandon the idea of demanding the recognition of being something more, I, I, I won't say national minority, the, the term would be what people would decide to, to be. But the question is that they have abandoned that debate just to have only small part of the cake. So we have a problem with that because we don't exist. What we have is, a, is an effort to only in the social side of the problem. So we are perceived still as a problem. But then when other interest is the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. In the, the Pentecostal movement in Spain is quite strong. And unfortunately, they are very conservative. And they don't, in my, in my opinion, they don't, they're not aware of the, the good thing that they have, is that they have their own space. They don't need the public to be. But they have decided to be present in the public discourses. They have decided to push their own agenda. And yes, yes, I heard that uh, sometimes those churches uh, they, they don't like flamenco. They don't like dancing in public. The strength of their religious belief is such that 
those are not good things and they're kind of imposing an outside view on the culture with the point of view that they think that they're purifying the culture from within uh, or, or something like that. Can you? Yeah, just... yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, there is this story of artists who who abandon their careers just to God. No? I find that also in, in the Black movement. In... Yes. So we have created our own flamenco version of gospel and it's quite good. It's quite good. It's very unique. It's something new. So you have that, you have this consideration of flamenco as something belonging to the world what they call the wall, which is outside the church. No? Mm-hmm. But then in Madrid, for example, the flamenco artists who became uh, evangelists, they created their own church. So we have the church of the flamenco artists, and they became so successful and that they influenced the flamenco evangelical uh, music. So although they had this moral uh, attitude against uh, flamenco good means to them, uh, they also had this like a very very active musical scene um, of Hitano Pentecostal. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Um, Miguel, after these difficult topics, let's play another game, okay? Okay. <laughs> We will now read you some terms and you answer spontaneously, associatively, so without thinking, with just one word or a short sentence, okay? Okay. Good. Family. Food. Flamenco. Black. Food. Memory. Pain. Pleasure. Stage. Light. Yesterday. Tomorrow. And now I say tomorrow. Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> What about home? Sleeping. <laughs> Resistance. Surprise. Europe. Africa. <laughs> Calo. Hitano. Okay. Bacht or Bachtalo. Bahi. Cajo. Uh, contradiction. <laughs> Rome. Uh, pride. Anti Gypsyism. Uh, That's also an answer. <laughs> yeah, 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 that is an answer, I think. Long and complicated thinking. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dilno is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun, and in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. Bok is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. Its Central European version, bacht, means luck or happiness. Bachtalo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting, Teoves bachtalo, may you be happy and lucky. Gorjo is the Anglo-Romani word for a non-Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning. Miguel, um, Romatopia is about utopia, about dreams for Europe. Let's start with 
the question, do you think that the current crisis is we are facing, the corona pandemic, climate changes, increasing anti-gypsyism, racism, etc., can can these crises be a starting point for a change into a better future? Well, we are told through media that this has to be a beginning of something. We get this uh, idea that this crisis um, will affect the idea of our system. I mean, and we are also challenged with the, the answer that Europe is giving. No? Like, is this Europe in responding well to what people are expecting? And I am not very much optimistic because it, this crisis comes added to other crises. So it's not as new. So it's just a consequence of what we had. So the people who are now poor were poor, like last year. <laughs> Maybe now they are more poor, not poorer. Um, well, in the case Europe, now this system we live in, I get confronted with the conflict of accepting but of questioning the system. So Europe, what we have is is not what people vote for. It's not. So Europe has to change. <laughs> But also I accept that it cannot other film because it's an idea that in the very own creation had what we have today. So it's, it's like realizing that for me, it's not a surprise that we are in a crisis because we created a system that would allow <laughs> crisis so like inequalities if you create an, an unequal system you would have unequal realities oh very interesting very interesting i want to talk a little bit or ask you a question about you know we talked about what it is to be roma well you you mentioned some specific things and this has been also we talked about Uh, this also with Ethel Brooks, who, just like you, emphasized you know, family, solidarity, responsibility. And uh, Daniel Baker, he, he mentioned he thinks that Roma can be role models uh, because of their ability to adapt. What would you say in terms of what majority society can learn from Roma communities? Can we be role models? Is there something f that majority society could learn from us? I think what majority uh, society could learn from us is resistance. And my dear friend Nicolas would say that we lasted more than the Spanish Empire. And <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if you go back to our history, not only to the legislation, but to the the way we have been treated in more places, what you would find is like hate, not acceptance. But then you would also find that people demand you to deny you or to and make you be invisible or you to not say that you are a Gitano no? or a Roma. So if you, you see that in the history, how you explain that we are alive? If the systems, Western societies have like really strongly have tried to erase us, how we are still alive? Well, we are because we have used many different ways to resist that. No? So that that's one, one, one of the things that they, they can learn. The meaning of resistance in a very, very different complex context. And then in a more personal context, I think the majority could learn from us is that sense of um, seriousness. And I will explain why. We would call it shame. No? In my case, for example, just to be more personal, in this confrontation we live in of 
what being Gitano would mean in an inner uh, Roma context. So respect, the social respect, is a tool that we have to be accepted. Like you do something, if you fail, you are afraid that you will be questioned. So whatever you, 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 you do, you try to do it in a way that you would try not to fail your people, no? So this idea of being free, but at the same time, not to fail your people. Yeah, the responsibility or, yeah. or having basically, you know, being accountable for what you do. Some people would call it patriotism. Some people would call it citizenship. Yeah, it's that, but it's more because we know our, our limited resources. We know our small spaces or we know the little space we have in the power relation context. So in a way we have to confront that is, okay, a Roma person, if there is a problem, then it's when the contradictions arise, no? Okay, I think I think you kind of answered my next two questions, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Maybe you can you can confirm or or maybe yeah. Let's see if you have a different point of view. But so so, what is your utopia? What is your dream for Europe? And if you have a Romatopia, is it different for your local Roma community? So we have the inner and the outer circle here, and and maybe you could combine the two uh, in terms of Europe and and your Roma community. What would that utopia okay. look like? As I get older, I get even more uh, touched to what I think are my family memories. And I have been lost many, many times. And I also have been encouraged to participate in political environments. And I have played the game of representation. And I have felt the fear of failing those I represented in certain moments of my life. But then I also started to value more importance of community um, uh, spaces. There is a hidden and not known and not very much known history of Hitano involved in anarchism, in anarchist movement, in libertarian movement. Mm -hmm. And I learned, well, I realized that a way to get read of the gang of representation is to develop, to promote, to enrich our spaces, our Romanist. And the more local we get, the more international we, 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 we will be. Because otherwise, we will always be in the gang of representations of national or regionals of interest. So that's a way that I'm realizing that for me, a way to answer those problems that we are still facing, no? Mm. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your utopia. Miguel, we yeah. come to an end, but not without playing one last game. I'm the game lady today, will you? Next time we have to share these tasks. <laughs> so, Miguel, if you could ask one question on all radio, TV and print media in Europe for one day, what would it be? Okay. Okay, yeah, I know. Do you love your system? <laughs> Do you love your system? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> oh, that's that's new for me. Yeah, I, I never heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> Miguel, thank you so much. We could continue for hours, of course. Um, it was so nice talking to you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for your inspiring ideas. Thank you for the broken guitar uh, you brought us. <laughs> Thank you for singing. I think yes. everybody will be very happy to hear 
some some very different points of view. Different, but you know, uh, common themes uh, we're discovering. We're discovering different points of view, but I see that there is a core of common themes and an expression that are coming from very different people, and and I'm very happy to see this. Yes, indeed. It's been a pleasure. Romatopia is supported by the Federal Agency for Civic Education and the Council of Europe Roma and Travelers team. Idea and concept, Isabel Rabe. Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Bila and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prizreni. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production, Media Bricks Berlin 2020.